Good evening, everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage tonight. Um, tonight, we'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, we do have some in the lobby. Um, you're welcome to take one of those as our gift to you. Also, you can look it up um, on your phone or online if you're following along with us virtually today. So once again, we'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 5. Five verses one through five. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. Good evening, friends. It's good to be with you again. And for those of you who are new, a special welcome to you. My name is Steve, lead pastor here. And we are finishing up our series in First Peter. So it's this week and next week we'll wrap up. And then we will be in Easter. And for Easter, we're going to do a two-part mini-series. I know I initially said it was just going to be one, but we're going to look at the end of John where we see Jesus engage with Peter who wrote this letter and how Peter became the person that he is writing this. And it's too good. And so we couldn't just spend one week on it. We have to do it for two weeks. We'll do a two-week mini-series on that, and then we will jump into Psalms. And so uh, as you see this week's passage is on elders, the dynamic between elders and members in the church. And this was interesting for me as I was studying it this week, not only because I was forced to review my job description every single day, which was fun. Uh, in light of that, I'm stepping down, and Andrew Workman is stepping in as lead pastor starting next week. Um, no, but yeah, it was very sobering in a, in a good way for me. But also, I was thinking about our cultural moment and how uh, I think this is somewhat historically historically unique and how we're in a culture that views leaders and authority with a lot of skepticism, right? And so even just a few years ago, there was a Harvard professor. He wrote a pretty well-known book called The Death of Expertise. I think the title just says it all, The Death of Expertise. And in the first chapter, he's like, you know, you go to a party now, and you know, pretty much any social gathering you go to, there's going to be at least a few people in that gathering who have read a few blog posts and suddenly think they know more than people with PhDs. And they will be glad to enlighten you on anything from the history of imperialism to why vaccines are dangerous. And he's right. And then he goes on to say how there's an increasing um, just ignoring of authority because we feel like we just know things from reading a few articles. But um, on a more serious note, I know especially for those of us in the church, there's a suspicion of authority, not because we just feel like we know better, but because of how many people have abused their authority. I mean, Goodness gracious, even just in this past year alone, how many horrific uh, stories have we heard about people, not just outside the church, but inside the church, abusing their power. And so, should corrupt leaders be removed? Absolutely, 100%. And we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. But what should also comfort us and give us perspective is that Jesus and the New Testament writers were not naive about this. So corrupt leaders have been in the church from, you know, since the beginning of time, and certainly during Jesus' day. And so most of the New Testament letters address corrupt leaders. 
And so, we're, so we have a privilege tonight of looking at, like, what does a healthy dynamic between elders and members in a church, what is that supposed to look like? And we don't talk about this very often, so I'm hopeful this will be very clarifying for us so we can all hold each other accountable in practicing this together. And so uh, the order Peter follows here is more or less a rough outline of first he addresses elders, then he addresses members, then he addresses everybody. So just elders, members, everybody. And New Testament letters were read in the context of the gathered body of believers. So even as you hear him talking with elders, you all should be listening to this because especially as we're raising up elders in our church, these are the things that you want to see in me and the other elders that are shepherding our flock. Or if you move, you know, things that you want to see in future pastors that you are under. So first, uh, what does Peter say to elders? So he starts off in verse 1. So I, ex- I exhort the elders among you. So we have to stop already and ask, why does he say so? So is synonymous with therefore. So something, 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 therefore I exhort the elders among you. So what came before that? And what we looked at two weeks ago was he talked about suffering. So essentially the train of thought with Peter is don't be surprised at the fiery trial, but rejoice when you share in Christ's sufferings, blah, 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 blah. Therefore I exhort the elders. And so you have to ask, What's the connection between elders and suffering? And the connection is, I think it's this. So one, when hardship comes to a church and and things get hard, for an elder it's going to be tempting to bail, or you stay but you become bitter, either bitter toward God, bitter toward members. And for members, there's a temptation when hard times hit to get upset at your leaders because it's just very human when you suffer and you you need a scapegoat. And it's easy to just look at the leader and blame them. You know, this happened with Moses and the Israelites all the time. Um, and so, as we look at this and we think about how does it connect to suffering, I mean, even, if, even as we just think about this past year, I mean, did we not see this during COVID, which seemed to inflame everything? And by God's grace, not that much here in this church, but, I mean, in so many churches, you know, Pastors getting upset with members, and then members looking at the leaders and saying, you know, you're being way too, you're being way too conservative with COVID protocols, or you're being way too reckless, or why haven't you said anything about racial injustice yet, or how dare you speak on social injustice, you know, what are you, a Marxist? And what Peter's saying is, good grief, guys, like, when suffering comes into a, into a congregation, and it's going to, it's going to happen, elders, humbly shepherd your flock as Christ is so mercifully stuck with you, and members humbly follow your leaders. Okay, so that's why he's saying this right off of suffering, because he knows this is going to happen. And, you know, sadly, a lot of churches have split, you know, over the past year, and it's, it's tragic. So he says, I exhort the elders among you, and then he, he goes into verse 2, and he says, here's what you're to do, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. And so here he gives the task of an elder, what's an elder supposed to do, and the profile of an elder. You know, so what is the heart of an elder supposed to be. And the task of an elder is summed up in the word shepherd. So shepherd the flock of God. God uses the term shepherd to describe leaders all throughout Old and New Testaments. And so think about why is shepherd a fitting descriptor for an elder? And one is when you think about it, um, a, sh- a shepherd is in a, pos- is in a humble position. So, you know, in the eyes of the world and maybe a lot of times in the eyes of the church as well. And I know I experienced this when, you know, I became a pastor. Uh, suddenly, the dynamics at social gatherings changed a lot. And so, you know, when you go to a party, what's one of the first questions people ask you? You know, what do you do? 
And sure, people ask that because it's just an easy conversation starter, but also I think one reason why people ask it and why some people really enjoy answering that question is because it's a ranking question, you know, especially in an area like this. So what do you do? And if you respond with something like, oh, I'm an astronaut or I'm a brain surgeon, you know, like you go up in the hierarchy of the people at that party. And what I noticed is the first time I answered, I'm in professional Christian ministry and I teach from the Bible, you know, like my ranking plummeted. I was probably seeing like at the bottom of the totem pole uh, at that gathering. But when Peter describes us as shepherds, as elders as shepherds, so like the whole phrasing of celebrity pastor is a contradiction in terms. Because if you go into the ministry because you want to make a name for yourself or you want to be seen as high, well, that's fundamentally not what a shepherd is. You're, you're supposed to humble yourself just as Christ first humbled himself, as Philippians 2 says, right? So that's one, that's one way um, that the, the task of a shepherd plays out. Uh, but number two, think about a shepherd. A shepherd knows the flock. So a shepherd, when, if you just see a shepherd with sheep in a field, how does he care for the sheep? He doesn't just, you know, come in on a bike and drop a podcast on them or something and then leave. No, it, it's intensely relational. He stays with the sheep all the time. And so if you're in ministry and you just want to stay in your study all week and then just, you know, preach a sermon on Sunday and then disappear again, well, then you shouldn't be a shepherd, uh, even if you consider yourself an introvert. Uh, a shepherd should have an, like a pulsating desire in their heart to be with the flock. And this is one reason why, even as an introvert, I am really enjoying this season of a church as a church plant, because I get to know, you know, each person who comes in here, especially as time goes on and restrictions are lifting and so forth. So number two, a shepherd, a shepherd knows the flock. And then number three, and this is the hardest part, a shepherd goes after wandering sheep. And sheep wander for a number of reasons. So uh, sheep can wander because they are walking in sin. And so if a, an elder sees that somebody is walking in sin, then they have to pray for that individual and then summon up the courage to go to that person in love because oftentimes sheep will bite. You know, when a shepherd goes to help them, you, you aren't going to be looked at upon with favor often, but you need to do that if you care for the sheep. Uh, other times they wander because of a slow drift. So maybe, you know, you have a work or travel schedule that shifts, and so you just start to miss the gathered body and groups during the week more and more. Uh, or in a season like this, you start to live stream a lot more simply because it's convenient, you know, not because it's actually necessary. And so shepherd goes after sheep who are drifting. And number three, a shepherd goes after, uh, sometimes a sheep is wandering because they're limping. You know, this world is filled with pain, and sometimes you want to keep up with the flock, but you can't. And so as a shepherd, you need the eye and the heart to be, like, if not the first, one of the first people who notices when a sheep is limping and go after that sheep and either help bind them up yourself and carry them as Christ does with us or make sure they have the necessary, necessary support inside and outside of the community. So a shepherd goes after wandering sheep. And then finally, what does a shepherd do? A, a shepherd sticks with the sheep even when the night grows dark. You know, so if, if a wolf comes, if it gets cold, if sheep are hurting, a shepherd stays. So as the saying goes, faithless is he who says farewell when the road grows dark. And so Peter says, if you are a shepherd and the road gr grows dark, you stick with the sheep. You don't run, you don't flee, you stick with them. 
So that's what's wrapped up in this term shepherd. And then he goes on to say, shepherd the flock of God. Isn't that amazing? Uh, This was both the most comforting and the most challenging part, I think, of this whole passage. Shepherd the flock of God. So elders, remember, the people in the church, they do not belong to you. So yes, you you are taking care of them, but you do not own them. They belong to God. And as I was thinking about this, so uh, Andrew Workman, and I was, I was hoping he would be here because he's probably been wondering about this. So three years ago, he lent me a few books. And I still have these books because that's the kind of friend I am, okay? And uh, those of you who have children, you know that if you have a bookshelf, you know, in your living room or wherever, there's something about a bookshelf that acts like a Death Star tractor beam that draws the toddler toward the books. And they just crawl toward the bookshelf and just start going, poof, 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 poof. They just throw all the books out. And so Titus, you know, he loves to play with the books in our living room. And so what did I do with Andrew's books? I, you know, it didn't take long to see, oh, you know, Titus is throwing Andrew's books. So I put them on the top shelf. Why? Because as I looked at those books, I was thinking, shepherd the books of Andrew, right? So like these books, they belong to Andrew. And because they belong to Andrew, I'm going to take special care of them. So when Peter says, shepherd the flock of God, he says, remember, each and every single person who's sitting in your pews, who you see during the week, take good care of them because they belong to the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. And so treat them accordingly. And for members, you as well, this should give you so much comfort because, you know, I, you guys already know this, but inevitably, your elders are going to fail you or disappoint you. Inevitably, me and the other elders are going to act too quickly or too slowly or be too soft or too harsh all the time. And in in light of the things that have been happening recently, um, I know a lot of these more well-known preachers and pastors that have fallen hard due to some really intense sin, it's shaken a lot of people's faith because for a lot of these people, your faith story is tied up with these really well-known evangelists. And so when you remember, however, that you belong to Jesus— And not an individual person. This gives you a lot of stability knowing that you're not ultimately looking to a person as your Savior, but you belong to Christ. He's your chief shepherd. Okay, so that's the, the task of a shepherd, shepherding the flock of God. And then he goes into, okay, so what's the heart or the profile of an elder? And then, so he continues on in the second half of verse two. He says, first, not under compulsion, but willingly. And so if you are an elder, you're not to do it because you have to. Sometimes you do this because, you know, a church asks you to become an elder, and then you feel like, oh my gosh, well, I don't want to do this, but I feel like I'm disobeying God, so I'm just going to do it. Or you don't think there's anyone else in the church who's willing or qualified, so you step in. But what happens when you're shepherding the flock of God under compulsion? One of the first signs you know that you're doing this is grumbling kicks in. So, oh gosh, I have to go visit with this person again. I have to go to this elder meeting again. I have to preach this sermon again. (laughs) Right? Instead of viewing it as this is something I get to do in response to the mercy of Jesus Christ. So shepherd the flock, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Next, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So not for shameful gain. So the Bible all the time ties corrupt leadership to a love of money. And there's a balance here because in places like 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, you know, if a pastor, especially those who are working full-time, laboring and preaching and teaching, they should be paid fairly. So they're not having to worry about, you know, is my family going to be taken care of or not? Uh, But on the other hand, 
all the time, you know, Jesus, Paul are, are going after elders who are greedy for dishonest gain. And so if you're a pastor and you're making two times the median household income of the area that you're ministering in, mm, I would not want to meet Jesus on the final day if I were you. Okay, so, so don't shepherd out of shameful gain. This also means you don't prioritize members in your church who you may know are giving more than other people. Um, or shameful gain in the sense of some people go into ministry because they feel like, oh, it's a way that I can you know, make a name for myself. Or it's a way that if I can just know I influence people in the right direction, then God will be pleased with me. That's shameful gain. It says you do it eagerly. And then uh, next in the beginning of verse 3, he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So leadership is never categorized by lordship. Jesus made this emphatically clear in Mark chapter 10. It's not lordship, but it's humble, compassionate service where you're following Jesus and simply inviting the rest of the flock to follow Jesus as you are, are, as you are following Jesus. And so if you are a, an elder, and by, by the way, um, in case you're unaware in the New Testament, elder, shepherd, pastor, they're all used synonymously with people who lead God's church. So if you are a, a pastor in God's church and your leadership is in any way categorized by harshness, forcefulness, uh, manipulation of power structures, uh, not being careful with your speech, then what does Peter say in verse 5? God opposes the proud. God is fundamentally opposed to you. But instead, as a pastor, your leadership should be categorized by tenderness of heart, warmth, love, affection, I love how uh, Charles Spurgeon put it. So he, you know, he was part of a great revival in England, and he trained. A lot of people know him as a great preacher, but he poured his life into developing young ministers. And there's this uh, book I have called Lectures to My Students. It's a compendium of uh, lectures he gave to his students. And this is what he says when he's encouraging his students on leading not in a domineering way, but in a warm way. And he says, I love a minister whose face invites me to make him my friend. A man on whose doorstep sign reads, welcome, not beware of dog. Give me the man around whom the children come. A man without a friendly disposition should be an undertaker and bury the dead, for he will never succeed in influencing the living. A man must have a great heart if he is to have a great congregation. No pride and selfishness chill you when you approach him. He's as warm as your own fireside. He has his doors wide open to receive you, and you are with him. You are at home with him at once, as a ship is in a harbor. Such a man I would commend you to be, everyone. And wouldn't the churches in our country look so different? You know, if that characterized the pastors in our churches, and it's the kind of pastor that I aspire to be, it's the kind of pastor that I want you to uh, rebuke me for when I am not behaving in a warm way, like Peter here is describing, and like how, how Charles Spurgeon described it. It's, it's always what we should look for as we are raising up new elders. Okay, and then he says in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here's, here he's uh, comparing the uh, gorgeous but fading, you know, flowery crown that would be given to athletes if they would win a competition with the unfading eternal riches and joy that comes when you meet Christ 
on the final day. And so what Peter is saying here is, elders, when you shepherd the flock, this must be your motive. When you look toward Jesus, the chief shepherd, and you know that on that day you will receive an unfading crown of glory. That has to be your motive. And just this past week, I was talking with the director of a church planning network uh, on the East Coast. And he was saying he's been checking in with you know, over 70 pastors in this network. He said, you know, Steve, the common thread that I came across as I would talk with these pastors one-on-one is, is burnout. And, you know, especially after COVID when they just, like, couldn't handle another, you know, seed bed for division or just their own fatigue from shepherding amid a pandemic. And a lot of pastors have been telling me, I just, I don't know how much longer I can keep going. And when things return to normal and it's like we almost have to start up again, I just don't think I can keep doing it. And what Peter's saying is, yeah, like, what is going to get you through uh, false accusations or unfair attribution of motive or criticism or members leaving or people deconverting or people that you've had in your living room and you pour your heart out to them and then a month later they turn on you or ghost you because while wanting to see members mature and people convert are amazing things if those are your basis for ministry then what happens when those things aren't happening you'll despair so he says that you have to keep your eyes fixed on your savior for when you meet him on that final day And friends, for you too, even just as you think about like, why do you work? Because if you're working under the assumption is as long as people approve me or as long as people think well of me or as long as people compliment me or give me what I deserve, then when those those things aren't happening, you're going to start, you know, at best you'll become embittered. But if you are faithful, regardless of the fruit that you see in the moment, when you see Jesus and he holds you and says, well done, good and faithful. That'll be worth it. I, that'll be worth it. Every single minute. And so keep your eyes on the chief shepherd. So that's the word to elders, and then he moves on. He says, likewise, you, are, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, or uh, submit to the elders. And so here he says, you who are younger, broadly speaking, he's referring to everyone who's not an elder. But I think he uses the phrase younger, too, because just in general, you know, in general terms, older, more mature Christians tend to be easier to shepherd because younger people just more easily carry an attitude of, you know, I know better. And so he's saying, you who are younger, submit to the elders. In other words, when your elders are humbly shepherding the church as they follow Christ— Follow them in humble submission. And so, uh, what does this not mean? Because I know that word submission is triggering for a lot of people, uh, but submission is a fundamental part of Christian discipleship. And so, we have to not just understand it, but practice it. And so, uh, first of all, are the elders not supposed to submit to anybody? No, 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 not at all. So, um, there's one reason why we have a plurality of elders. Notice that Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. You know, when you see elders talked about in the New Testament, there's a plurality. And so I, we have currently have an external elder board that I submit to, and then it's, one, it's another reason why we're raising up more elders in this church. We have an internal board. I mean, not only does it help protect a pastor from becoming domineering, because on a peer level, he's being held to account, but also, I have one vote. You know, as lead pastor, my vote doesn't count for two or three or four. It's one. And I'm fortunate to have a great example of this. You know, so uh, Jason Conn, when I served as a lay elder at Portico, who we planted out of, uh, Jason, who was lead pastor, I was sharing this a little bit with our community group, but 
There was a situation where Jason, we were making a decision as an elder team, and, you know, no one knew about this outside of the elder team, and there was some, Jason really wanted to do it, <laughs> like, in his, in his bowels, like, he wanted to, to make this decision, and the rest, the rest of the elders said no, and he, not just, not begrudgingly, but he joyfully submitted to the elders and said, okay, and then he went for it and presented, you know, not in a fake way, but in an authentic way, a unified front with the elders. That was just so good for me to see, is because submission, it only, you only really know if you're willing to do it when, you know, it comes up against something that you want to do. Um, so elders submit to one another. Also, we're called to submit to Christ. Hebrews 13 says we're going to give an account to him on that final day. Um, but what does it look like for, uh, for members to submit to the elders? And so here's what it doesn't mean. Let's be very clear on this. It doesn't mean blindly obey your elders regardless of how they're living. So if an elder, me or anybody else, is shepherding in any kind of domineering way or for shameful gain or compulsion or not under the other qualifications listed in uh, Titus chapter 1 or 1 Timothy chapter 3, then you are not called to submit to them. So 1 Timothy 5 says first, you know, bring a few witnesses and confront them. And if the elder continues to walk in sin, then they should be rebuked and removed. And we have this in our bylaws, you know, where the members can remove an elder, you know, for walking in just continued uh, willful disobedience to the Lord. Um, so so that's, that's, what it, that's what it doesn't mean. But what does it mean? Here's one thing it means is if an elder does something or makes a decision, and it's not sin, maybe it's just something that you disagree with, then what members are called to do is not adapt the approach of, in the mindset of, oh, I know better, that stupid, you know, boomer, uh, elder, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you create a, you know, a faction and you talk about them behind their back. You know, can you believe they did this? Like, no, here's what it means. You can disagree, and, and maybe you do know better. But what it looks like is you maintain an air of respect, and then if you need to, go to that elder with other people if you need to and talk with them about things. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles, who are certainly better than me when it comes to pastoring, members of their church came and said, hey, we're neglecting the poor. And the apostles, you know, responded accordingly. And uh, just, you know, not too long ago, there were a couple people in our church, who, there was a sermon where they felt like the ap- one of the applications I gave didn't line up with the, with the text. And so they approached me, they said, hey, Steve, um, you know, we're going through this text and you gave this application and it just seemed like you kind of like pulled it out of left field and it didn't really connect to the text. And um, why that's such a good example is because they weren't passive, you know, but they they care about the preaching of God's word, but they came to me and they just, hey, can can we talk about this? And it was great. It was so eye-opening for me even to hear how, how things, how things are conveyed. And so that's what good, healthy dynamics look like as the elders are always called to put the needs of their members above themselves, submit to one another, submit to Christ, and the members, given the elders walking in the lanes that Scripture gives, they follow the elders as the elders follow Jesus. And this is so rare to see. And so I continue to pray this for our church that we can have these kinds of healthy dynamics. And then how does he say all this is possible? Uh, He says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here's talking to everybody, elders, members, clothe yourself. So why do you think he chooses that language? And uh, this is, so John Piper was talking on this passage, and what he said, I think, I think Peter uses the language of clothe yourself, because when you think about, like when you adorn yourself, you think about who's going to be seeing you when you go out into the world. 
And so as you think about, like, what am I projecting to the world? What do I want people to see about me? What do I want people to notice about me? You know, what do I clothe myself with, metaphorically speaking, or for some of you, maybe literally speaking? It better be humility. Because, like, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So just, uh, let's just sit on this for a minute as you think about, you know, because every time you, you go in a group or you're at work, there's a sense in which, you, you know, you feel like you're a little bit on a stage kind of performing, you, know, you're, you want to put on some masks because you want people to perceive you in a certain way, is the number one thing you want people to see about you, humility. Uh, particularly in an Instagram era of self-exaltation and self-promotion. This will make people turn their heads. And so do you clothe yourself in humility? Um, Do you think you're, just be honest with yourself, do you think you're better than other people? Are there certain people or certain groups of people where in your head there's a subtle, thank goodness I'm not like that person. That's pride. And so if that's you, and if you say, oh, that's not me, I'm a humble person, be careful. <laughs> just pray this week for just God to use grace on your heart and just help you develop a, a clothing of humility so that other people see it. And he says, when you do this, God gives grace to the humble. And so grace here doesn't mean this just like, so when you walk in humility— And God gives you grace. This doesn't mean a one-time deposit of forgiveness, and then God says, see you later. No, grace has uh, multiple meanings, and one of the nuances here is grace is a, a living power that enables you to actually follow the exhortations that are given in this letter. And more than that, grace is, it's fundamentally entwined to a person. So Paul says, when he's encouraging a discouraged pastor in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So as Timothy is looking at people leaving the church and people opposing him, he says, Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you receive grace in the way that Peter's talking about, you, you get more of Christ experientially. And so as we end here, as we think about walking in humility and we get more of Jesus, you know, the sermon's been very, like, information and application heavy. Let's take a moment here and pretend like you've never heard this before. Because when you get more of Christ, who's described as what in verse 4? The chief shepherd? Like, what does that mean about the person who is in you by his Holy Spirit and alongside you? In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And when a hired hand watches over the sheep, the sheep don't belong to him. So when a wolf comes, he flees because he doesn't care about the sheep. But because I know my sheep and I care for my sheep, I lay down my life for my sheep. I don't run when the wolf comes. And so with Jesus, not only do you have a shepherd who laid down his life for you as your substitute for your sin and then rose again, but he ascended. And now he walks alongside you, with you, as your shepherd. And so what does this mean? Do you feel weak? Do you feel troubled? Do you feel lonely? You have a shepherd who, he knows you. 
you have a shepherd who runs after you when you wander, not out of compulsion, but eagerly. You have a shepherd who, when you are, you are limping, he's the first one to notice, always. And he runs after you and binds you up and carries you. And while faithless is he who says farewell when the road darkens, faithful is he who stays with you no matter how dark the road gets. And that's our Savior. And he shepherds you all the way into what Revelation 7 describes as, you will see your great shepherd who will guide you to springs of living water, and he will wipe away every tear from your eye. We have, a, a ma- we have an amazing shepherd. He's so good. And so let's clothe ourselves in humility toward one another and follow him together. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you are our good shepherd. Um, I can't be the shepherd you are, and I uh, just thank you for the privilege it is that it is to be a under-shepherd of this church. I thank you for what a joy it is to shepherd here, and I pray for me and everybody in this room that we will cherish anew uh, the fact that you are risen and the fact that you stay by our side and shepherd us in the way that only you can. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.